following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Before we read, I'm just going to share one funny thing with you that I saw yesterday. Uh, if you've been here for a while, you may remember this. A few weeks or months ago now, I guess it was, I read to you a list of funny sermon titles that I had seen on a, a church in our area just over the years, and um, they just stood out to me, so I, I had just kind of kept up with them. Well, I was driving home from Chesapeake yesterday morning. I had gone out there for a meeting, and on my way back, I passed a church there on Mount Pleasant Road that probably had the absolute funniest church sign. It's actually funny because it's sad. Let me make sure it's clear about this. Okay, it's a terrible sign, but it's for that reason it was funny because it was so bad. Here's what it said. Bring your spiritual marshmallows because our pastor is on fire. <laughs> I, I, t- I called Jamie as soon as I saw it, and I'm like, what is going through your mind? Like, is that a meeting, a decision that's made in a meeting? Like, oh, I got a good idea. I got a great idea for the sign. I mean, maybe they really love their pastor. I hope it wasn't his idea to put that out there, but what are spiritual marshmallows? Is it still out there? You saw it too? Oh my goodness, that's the worst one I've ever seen in my life. All right, that has nothing to do with the rest of today. That's why it's up front, so I could get past that. I just had to share that one with you. It was so bad. We're in Mark chapter 2. I want you to look at verse 18. We're going to read verses 18 to 22, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. In verse 18, Mark writes, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? Your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Pray. Lord, please speak to us today. Please open up our eyes, open up our minds, open up our hearts. Be confronted with your truth this morning. Take your word and pierce us deeply. You've told us that your word is able to go to the very motives of the heart. And ultimately today, Lord, that's what this text is really driving us to examine, is what are the motives of our heart in how we live our lives for you. And so there's nothing I can say that would force us or cause us to be able to examine those things well, but your word is powerful, and so our trust is in you, our trust is in your spirit, that you will be here with us and speak to us, and through this passage, change us as we pray every single week. So Lord, please do that again this morning, we ask it's in your name we pray, amen. So um, speaking of sayings that you might see on a church sign, there was one that was popular a few years back. Uh, that I'm sure many of you have seen, it goes something like this, that it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. Have you seen that one? Um, I I know I've seen that on church signs before. I know I've seen that on bumper stickers before. I'm pretty sure Chris has a t-shirt that says that, but I'm not 100% positive of that one. 
But, you know, it's a statement when you think about it that is attempting to draw a distinction between authentic Christianity and, and the concept that I think most people have in their minds when they speak of the word religion, just you know, generally speaking, in many people's minds, the word religion conjures up ideas of a formal system of worship and belief filled with customs and rites and practices and requirements that in the end have pretty much nothing to do with one's daily life. If you grew up Catholic, then I'm sure instantly images are jumping in your mind of, of cathedrals or at least churches with vaulted ceilings. And you walk in and there's pictures and there's statues and images and there's a guy at the front in a robe and he's leading a service where you are expected to participate in certain religious activities, rites, whether it's the Mass or, or communion or whatever else is going on. And so that's maybe what jumps in your mind. If you grew up Protestant, I'm telling you, even though you may think you're very different, you're not because you grew up in much of the same kind of mindset where every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, you showed up at a building that was referred to as the Lord's house, where a man in a suit and tie asked you to participate in certain events as well. As good Christians, we're expected to read our Bibles every day and give money and not do a whole laundry list of items, whether or not they're really required by Scripture. You see, in many people's minds, that is the essence of what religion is really is. It's that formal system of worship and belief filled with customs and rites and practices and requirements that, when you get right down to it, have almost nothing, nothing to do with people's everyday lives. And so in contrast to that, then, this saying that it's about relationship, not religion, is trying to say that there is more to authentic biblical Christianity than what all of those requirements and rights and practices and all the trappings of religion ever could communicate that it that it's about having a real personal intimate relationship with god the father through the death burial and resurrection of his son jesus christ and as such that is an important distinction to make is it not because if if my standing before god is based on religion It's based on that formal system of of all these practices and things I have to do and can't do. If my standing before God is based on my ability to practice religion, then here's the problem with that, is that I can do it. I can observe all the rituals, and I can worship in all the ways I'm supposed to, and I can believe all the things I'm supposed to, and I can do the things you tell me to do, and I can avoid not doing avoid doing the things you tell me not to do, if, it's, if my standing before God is based on religion, I can do that. However, if my standing before God is not based on religion, but is rather based on my relationship with the Father through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then guess what? It's, it's not about me at all then, is it? Now see, then it's all about Jesus, and apart from Jesus, I have absolutely nothing And so my acceptance in God's eyes is not based on me. My acceptance in that system is based on Jesus. And that's incredibly, incredibly different, which is why I said that it's an important distinction to make. This distinction between relationship and religion, we we need to keep that distinction in mind. And it is that distinction that is at the core of what we're going to look at here in Mark chapter 2 this morning. As you know, we've been working through a series of controversies that Jesus is going through here in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, through Mark chapter 3, verse 6. There's a series of five scenes 
in that in those in those verses. But we're looking at four controversies. One will get one will get two scenes, and so far we've seen the following in Mark chapter two verses 1 through 12, we saw the first of these controversies, and this had to do with the wrong understanding of the divinity of Jesus. Remember that? We looked at it two weeks ago. That Jesus is, is saying to this paralyzed man who's been brought to him, son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees say, you can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he proves he's God by telling this man, rise up, walk. He heals the man. He goes home. And in so doing, he shows that the Pharisees have some wrong theological expectations of who Jesus is. They think he's just a man. But he's far more than a man. And he proves it by healing this uh, paralytic and by forgiving his sins. Controversy number two is what we looked at last week. And it had to do with a wrong understanding of the lifestyle of Jesus. And if you were here, that's in verses 13 to 17, we see that Jesus is calling this guy Levi, who is a tax collector by occupation, to be one of his disciples. And when we hear that, we don't get all up in arms about it because we don't, I mean, we may not like taxes, but we don't have like a moral like response to someone who works for the IRS, I don't think, most of us anyway. Um, but, but in Jesus' day, they would have. They looked at a tax collector as being the lowest of the low. He's a scoundrel, he's a liar, he's a cheat, he's a traitor to his country and a traitor to his God. It would be better to spend your days with a leper than to spend your days with a tax collector. And so here's Jesus, not just talking to this guy, not just showing kindness to this guy, he's actually calling this guy to become one of his disciples. And they, they can't get their minds around that. And then, and then to make matters worse, what does he go and do next? He goes and has dinner with them. Levi invites him back to his house and he throws a party. And so who does Levi invite? His friends, the tax collectors and sinners. And I love, I love, I, didn't, I don't know if I said this last week. And I love that Mark refers to them as sinners here. Because I don't think it's Mark's personal opinion that he's like, I don't think he's looking at these people as sinners. He is showing you the mindset of the Pharisees. When you get to their response, you understand that. They look at the house as being full of sinners. So he uses their word. Jesus is eating with all these sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes see this and they're dumbfounded. How can he eat with them, they ask. And Jesus' response there is just so cutting. Because people who are well don't need a physician, just the people who are sick. And in a similar way, I didn't come to call righteous people. Don't worry about it. If you're righteous, you're good, okay? I didn't come to call righteous people. I only came to call sinners. And in that statement, he is damning the Pharisee. You didn't pick up on that last week? I'll make it clear. He's damning them. He's accusing them. Because in their eyes, they are the righteous one. And they look at themselves, and they look at their, funny enough, religious observances. They are righteous. You don't get better than them. And all these other people, particularly these tax collectors and the people that hang out with them, they're the sinners. And Jesus is like, that's fine. That's fine. I didn't come to help the righteous people. Righteous people don't need a savior. No, only sinners need a savior. And I came to call them. And so Jesus responds to that, to that way of thinking. And today now we're going to look at this third controversy that erupts around another wrong expectation or understanding of Jesus. This time it's not a, a theological expectation that he's violating as it was in the first scene, nor is it a, a personal expectation that he's violating as he does in the second scene. And this time it is a religious expectation that he violates. And the controversy that erupts around this one has to do with a wrong understanding of the very nature and purpose of Jesus' coming. And so just like we've done over the last few weeks, 
Let's walk through the text and see this for ourselves. As always, we'll begin by looking at the setting here in verse 18. And of all the scenes that we're going to look at in this little mini-series on controversies, uh, this one is the most brief in terms of the situation itself that leads to the controversy. I mean, if you just think about the last two, in both of those cases, there was a little bit of a backstory that was kind of built up to get you into the moment of, of controversy. There was a little bit of a situation that was developed. This time, though, you have the entire setting summed up in one sentence. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. That's it. That's our setting. And I think that the reason he treats the setting of this scene in such a such kind of a nonchalant manner without explaining it or without elaborating on what's going on here, I think the reason he does it this way is because he must be assuming that his readers or his listeners will have some shared cultural understanding of both what fasting is and with why these people are doing it, and therefore he doesn't feel the need to elaborate. It would kind of be like, I was thinking about uh, this this week, it would be like if I wrote you an email and I said, hey, next Sunday, let's get together and watch the Super Bowl. And 2,000 years from now, when football has ended and nobody plays football anymore, and, and there's a whole new culture that has no concept of what football is, someone finds my email. And so they're reading it for the first time going, what is a super bowl? Is it a big bowl? What is this bowl? And why would you get together with another person to watch it? See, see, because we have a shared cultural understanding of, of what I said to you, I, I don't need to explain what a Super Bowl is or why we would get together to watch it, right? You just get it just because of our culture. But if you don't share that culture, then it may not be as clear. And I think that's a good analogy of what's going on here because his readers have this shared cultural understanding of what fasting is and, and why you do it. Mark really doesn't need to give any further explanation or setting for this controversy than this one statement, but we've got a problem. We don't share that same, same understanding. And so for us to understand why Jesus responds like he does here, I think we need to stop at the very beginning and just say, okay, what is fasting? Why were these people fasting so that we can really understand what's going on in the rest of the scene? First, what is fasting here in the first century? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to break this out into two broad categories. These are my categories. You don't, you're not going to find these if you go anywhere and read people who are smart. Okay, you're going to just my categories of types of fasting in the first century. It's oversimplified, but it's helpful for getting it. The first type of fast I just call a personal fast, okay? A fast you do for some personal reason. And so uh, examples of this might be grieving over the, the death of a loved one. You know, if your spouse dies or a child dies or a parent dies or a friend dies or a neighbor dies, it, it, particularly in first century Judea, you are going to express that grief in some very public and, and outward ways. And so things they would do would be sitting in, in sackcloth and ashes, right? You read that in the Old Testament. That's an outward way of showing an inner grief, an inner pain, an inner, inner trouble. And you would wail publicly. You would even hire professional mourners, wailers, to come to your house and wail. Doesn't that sound weird? Or is that just me? It's just weird. But you would do that. It's a way of showing publicly that, that there is grief in your home. And another way you would do it is by fasting. By purposefully avoiding food so that you could show people how heartbroken you were. Another example of this would be people who fasted over a national tragedy. You'll see examples of both of these in the Old Testament. 
where something happens to the nation, the army is defeated, the king dies, something happens. And as a way of expressing your sadness over whatever it was that happened to your nation, you choose to to fast. It's a public expression of of grief in one of those settings. This is not the type of fast that that Mark is referring to here. Because the other type of fast that, that was commonly observed in that day was a spiritual fast. A fast that was done for some kind of spiritual purpose. And this kind of fasting is the purposeful avoidance of sustenance for spiritual or religious purposes. In other words, you purposely make a decision to forsake either food or food and water, depending on the the length and nature of your fast, for some spiritual purpose or reason. Now, as I say that to you, you need to understand one other thing. That in the Old Testament law, God only required one fast of his people. Just one. And you find that fast. You don't need to turn there, but if you keep notes, write it down. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29 and following, those verses after that. This is where God is giving Israel instructions about what they should do on the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, this holy day where where the priest is going to appear before God and he's going to make atonement for the sins of the people, God commands the children of Israel to fast or afflict themselves, as some translations put it, but it's talking about fasting. They're in observance of that holy day. One day a year. That's all God required of his people to to fast in the spiritual kind of way. But but by the time we get to Jesus' day, Fasting had become a much, much more common religious discipline than than just once a year. The Pharisees who were involved here in the story, they made a regular practice of fasting two days a week every single week of the year. According to historical records, those days were Mondays and Thursdays. I don't know why, but they were. And they did this for spiritual purposes. It had become an expression of their religion. And just based on what Mark says here in verse 18, I think it's safe to assume that the disciples of John the Baptist had had kind of followed along in that practice as well. And so what you have here is evidence that two of the most highly regarded religious parties of Jesus' day both regularly practiced fasting in its purposeful avoidance of food kind of way for spiritual or religious purposes, but why? Okay, that's the other big question. That's what it is. Why did they do it? Well, I'm going to very quickly give you six reasons why it was done. And I want you to really have your thinking cap on as you hear these. I'm going to give them pretty quickly, so, so pay attention, because it's going to come back up at the end. Number one, it was done because it was one of the three main pillars of Judaism. Three main pillars of Judaism were prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. So if you wanted to be an observant Jew in Jesus' day, three things were most important, prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And so you fasted, that's one of the reasons. Number two, they did it to ward off demons. They believed that by fasting they could keep the, the power of evil spirits away from them and their family, and so fasting was a, seen as a means of that. Number three, they would fast to get God to bestow a gift on them. So, God, I need something. I mean, we, man, we're, we're rent short this month. The crops didn't come in right. We really need rain. We better fast, family. Fast so that God will give us whatever thing we need. Number four, they would fast to avert some calamity falling on them. So it's kind of the opposite. The Number three is to get God to give them something. Number four is to try to keep something away. So God, keep the sickness that's affected everyone else in town away. Keep the static away from my home, God. I'm not going to eat all week, so you keep static out of my house. Number five, 
They would fast to humiliate themselves before God. And I'll stop on this one because this is the point that Jesus probably had the most interaction with the Pharisees on throughout the Gospels. As you read through there, he's regularly going to confront them about their they're using fasting as a way of trying to make themselves look more spiritual in the eyes of, of people and really in the eyes of God as well. So he tells his disciples, hey, look, when you fast, wash your face and fix your clothes and make yourself, don't let anyone else know that you're fasting so that the God who sees you fast in secret will reward you openly. Remember those, those words of Jesus there? The Pharisees like to go out with their faces all sad and they're doubled over in hunger oh i'm so i've been fasting all day because i love god so much and they're standing on the street corner so everybody can see them do this this humbling themselves before god had turned into a badge of piety for them a way of exalting themselves above others funny enough and jesus jesus doesn't have any time for that he, he regularly regularly interacts with them on that specific point that's number five and then number six the sixth reason why you would fast in jesus's day it's to atone for sins. God, I know I've, I've sinned against you. I wasn't kind to my neighbor today. I, I lied. I'm going to fast. I'm going to if, uh, avoid food. I'm going to punish myself as a way of making up for what I have done for you. That, this is what at least the Pharisees are doing here. I can't really speak about John's disciples, why they chose it, because we just don't have information on it. But even as you look back in history, this is why the Pharisees are fasting. And based on that understanding then, now, now you maybe can understand the controversy here in the next part of the verse. And this is really, really simple and quick. People, just generally, some people come to, to Jesus and they say, hey, why do John's disciples... And the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast. Why is that? And it's funny that they don't ask Jesus directly. You've noticed that? They don't come say, why don't you fast, Jesus? I don't know if they're trying to be polite, because it depends on who the people are, right? They could be polite, and they don't want to like address Jesus directly, be like, so why don't your disciples fast? Instead of accusing him, or it could just be because they wanted it to be an insult. It really doesn't matter. What you see here is an expectation on the part of the people that Jesus will follow the religious norms and practices of his day. They expect him to do this. Hey, John's disciples fast, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast. Shouldn't you be fasting? Shouldn't your disciples be fasting too? They assume that they should be fasting. Everyone else is doing it. John's a prophet from God. Are you better than him? The Pharisees are the holiest people we know are. Are you better than them? If they're fasting, certainly you and your disciples should be too. That's, that's kind of the heart behind the questions. They expect him to fit into the religious mold set by those around him. But as we'll see in a moment, that's not really Jesus' plan. No, you have to see this in his response. It comes in two parts. First, he responds with what I'm calling a parabolic question. It's like a, a parable in a question form. Uh, and he, he, he's illustrating his response via a wedding. And he asked the question, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? That's the question. And some of us in this room struggle with rhetorical questions. And so I'm going to help you with the answer to that. Okay, the answer here is no. It would be inappropriate and wrong to go to a wedding, which is supposed to be a joyous time, a feast, a celebration, and to say, no, thank you, I'm fasting today. I can't have any of your delicious meal or the cake or anything else. 
that, that, would, that would be wrong. If there was ever a time to eat too much and to celebrate too much, it's at a wedding, right? That, that's what you do. It's, it's supposed to be filled with joy, and Jesus is pointing that out. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. However, he says, the days are coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then, then when the bridegroom's not there anymore, then, then they can fast. What's he talking about with that? He's talking about his death. Talking about his ascension to the right hand of God in this parabolic question, he answers these people by telling them that as long as he is with his disciples, it would be wrong of them to fast. Wrong of them to fast. Hold that thought because we'll come back to it in a moment. Second, he responds with a pair of parabolic proverbs. Say that five times fast. Pair of parabolic proverbs. Yes, very good. Uh, These are just little truths. Little axioms, little, little proverbs that are intended to make a point. The first little axiom or proverb that he gives has to do with fabric. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Because if you do that, the patch, when it shrinks, will tear away from the old garment and the new, the new from the old, and a worse tear is going to be made. The second axiom or proverb has to do with the storage of wine. No one puts new wine into old wineskins because if he does, the wine will burst the skins. The the wine is going to be destroyed and so are the skins. No, no, no. New wine needs to go in fresh wineskins. What what in the world is he talking about? Well, think about each proverb for just a moment. Think about the fabric here. If you've got an old garment that you've worn for years, particularly, it's hard for us to think about this, but get away from today and think about 2,000 years ago. You've got a garment that you've worn for for years, and it's gotten a tear in it, and so you go to the the local fabric maker. I don't know what you call that person. You go to that person, and you get a piece of fabric, and you come home, and you, you sew it on. Well, it's the first time you wash it, and you set it out to dry. What happens? It begins to shrink, and when it does... It takes that already delicate and damaged old fabric and it pulls away, it tears, it makes it worse. And anyone who's got half a brain in Jesus' day knows you would never do that. That's stupid. Think about the illustration of the wine and the wineskins for a moment. He, he says, you can't, you can't fill this in. Well, why? Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to gross you out. A wineskin is like an animal stomach or other nasty part of their innards. Okay, bladder, intestines, something bad, whatever, okay? So, so they would take this, and they would pour, while it was still fresh and pliable, gross, they take this, and they would pour their wine into it. And there was a reason they did it at that moment. Can you guess what the reason was? What happens to wine as it ferments? It expands. And as it expands, it stretches, well, as long as the wine skin is fresh and pliable and Mmm, yummy, like that. It can stretch with the expanding wine and everything's fine. But after it's sitting, sat for a while, it becomes tough and hard and no longer pliable. So if you drink all the wine out of it, for some reason, and then you want to put more in, and it begins to expand, what happens to the wineskin? It, it can't stretch anymore. It, it bursts as that wine is fermenting and expanding. He, he, you can't fix an old garment with new fabric. That, that doesn't work. You can't fill an old wineskin with, with new wine. That, 
That doesn't work. In, in both cases, the new doesn't work with the old. Either case, they're, they're incompatible. New fabric needs to be uh, used to make new clothes, not repair old clothes that are torn and, and need to be repaired. You can't do that. New wine goes in new wineskins, not in old ones that are rigid and inflexible. And now you need to put it all together. In Jesus' response, we see his understanding of the nature and purpose of, of not just fasting, but of all, but all religion as a whole, all of it as a whole. Fasting is the particular example on display here, but, but I would apply it much more broadly than this. First, in that parabolic question, it's clear that Jesus sees himself as being the central focus of all religious practice. He says here to these people, it would be inappropriate, it would be wrong if my disciples fasted when, when I'm with them. And saying that to them, he's showing us that he is the end of fasting. He's the purpose of fasting. He's the, the focus of fasting. And if he's with you, why would you ever fast? A day will come when he won't be there anymore, and then fasting may be appropriate. But, but here, it's not about being a good Jew or warding off demons or getting gifts from God or avoiding calamities or humbling yourself before him. And it's definitely not about atoning for sins. Because here, the ultimate purpose you see of any religious act is about being with Jesus. Any religious act. It's about being with Jesus. And when you think about who Jesus is based on what we've seen so far, and you think about why they, they fasted in the first place, it becomes very clear. Because why fast a word off demons when the person who has authority over demons is standing right next to you? Why, why fast to get a gift from God when God's greatest gift to man is standing right in front of you? But why fast to, to have a calamity avoided when the one who heals all diseases is standing next to you? Why fast to humble yourself before God when God himself has humbled himself for you and he's standing right in front of you? Why fast to atone for sins when the one who has the power and authority to forgive sins is standing right in front of you what's fasting going to do if you understand it in the ways they did what's fasting going to do that jesus doesn't do far more superiorly these are all the reasons the pharisees fasted and jesus is the fulfillment of every single one of them it'd be wrong to fast when jesus is there second in those parabolic proverbs, it's clear that Jesus sees himself as something new and something different than what existed in his day. It's not the same thing. He wasn't coming simply to repair a broken system that needed to be fixed, as if Jesus is going to be the patch on that system that'll make all those things right that were wrong. Nor is he coming just to fit within its mold, as the people clearly thought he would do and should do. What Jesus is bringing is something new and different that's going to replace the old way of thinking completely. That, that's why I said to you that this controversy has to do with a wrong understanding of the nature and purpose of Jesus' coming. They apparently thought, the people around him apparently thought and expected him to simply conform himself to the religious understanding of his day. And Jesus in his response makes it clear that he didn't come to reform to the conform to the religious understanding of his day, he came to transform it completely into something new that was centered on a relationship with him. Now, you know, what do you learn from all this? 
Well, I think in this story, in this scene, we learn the real purpose and value of religious or spiritual acts or disciplines or whatever you want to call them. Notice, just pointing this out here, that even in the midst of this response, Jesus never says, hey, don't fast. He never says no to fasting, as if fasting is somehow the problem. In fact, later he's going to tell his disciples, look, when you fast, do it like this, not like this. He still expects them to perform these kinds of disciplines and, and acts. He, he doesn't, he's not worried about the fasting itself. No, he's worried about the purpose behind it. Because if the purpose of the act is to get God to do something or to try to avoid something or to look more spiritual both to God and to others or to somehow make ourselves acceptable to God and, and pay for our sins, then it doesn't matter what the act is. It's wrong. Anything, it's wrong. Fasting can't do any of those things for you. Only, only Jesus can do those things for you. And you know, it's true of everything. Why do you read your Bible every day? If you do, you should. But why? Why, why should you do that? Is it so that God will be happy with you? Do, you? do you have like these latent beliefs in the back of your mind that say, well, if I don't read my Bible today, God's going to be angry with me. Oh, I read my Bible this morning. Okay, God's happy with me again. Like, is that going through your head and your heart? Do you do it so you can look more spiritual before others? Why did you come here this morning? This is a spiritual act, a religious discipline, to gather together with God's people and worship and learn together. But why did you come? Because it's tradition and you've always done it and you felt guilty if you didn't show up or someone was going to make you feel guilty if you didn't show up? It's important for us to remember that fasting or reading our Bibles or gathering together for worship, it doesn't matter, fill in the blank. None of that ever elicits God's grace, forgiveness of sins, or acceptance. None of it. Any attempt to renounce the pleasures of earthly life in order to gain favor with God or attain eternal life is to be rejected any observance that we do simply to conform to external rules imposed on us by others is to be rejected. All spiritual exertion that aims only at setting ourselves apart from and above others is to be rejected because one never becomes a saint by fasting or reading your Bible or doing anything else that you might associate with the Christian way of life. One becomes a saint only by the shed blood of Jesus. That's it. See, it's only when those things are done out of a heart of gratitude and thankfulness for what Jesus has done for you that they're right and good and helpful and can offer real praise to God. See, the issue here isn't the discipline. The issue here isn't the act or the, the, the ritual or whatever because it's good and right for us as believers in Jesus to have some things that we do and other things that we do not do because of what Christ has done for us. There are some things as a believer that I should do because Jesus died for me. There are things that I should pursue and follow and, and, and strive for out of gratitude for the gospel. And there are things that I should not do and I should avoid and I should say no to out of gratitude for the gospel. Those are right and good and every one of us should have those things. The issue isn't the disciplines the issue is always our heart. And David Garland said it this way, and, and I love it, and I'll close with this. 
He said Christian spirituality, or you could insert the word religion, Christian religion, is not intended to be a ball and chain that keeps the spirit from soaring. If that's how you view religion, that's how you view Christianity, it's a ball and chain, it's making you do these things and it's stopping you from doing these things, something is wrong with your heart. You don't get it. You don't understand what Christianity is all about if you see it as a ball and chain. No, he says, the exaltation over the coming of the one who forgives sins and feasts with sinners and the glad expectation of the glory to come is to affect our mood and outlook in life. It's supposed to be done out of gratitude, thankfulness, and love for God. And so I challenge you today, why do you do the things you do for, for Jesus? Why are you here? Why, why do you pray? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you teach your children? Why do you give money? Why do you sing songs? Why, why do you do any of those things? They're not done out of a heart of gratitude for the gospel. And you're wasting your time. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we come now and we acknowledge that there are so many things that we do merely out of some misguided attempt to gain your favor or to to make you happy with us or to avoid you being angry with us or to maybe even pay for our sins for some people here in this room this morning. There are things we do out of guilt, things we do out of tradition. None of those reasons are good. In fact, all of them are wrong. The end goal, the end purpose of every single religious activity, discipline, act, right, custom, whatever, is you. It's to be with you and to be like you. You are the, the new that replaces the old. You take those old reasons for doing things and you remove them. You don't, you don't just fix them. They're, they're not fixable. They, rem- they need to be removed and replaced with a heart of love for you and your, what you've done for us by dying on the cross for our sins. And so forgive us, Father, for pursuing all of these things for wrong reasons. Forgive us for pursuing religion even as we proclaim relationship. Lord, we, we need to remember that it's relationship all the way through, start to finish, and it's about you. And so, Father, as we go out from here, help us to remember that the reason that it is well with our soul, the, the song we're about to sing. It's not because of, of anything we've done. If it was our standing with you was, was based on religion, we, we would be okay. Ultimately, our standing with you is based on what Jesus has done. And the reason it's well with our soul is because of him, not us. Help us to never forget that truth. It's so easy to walk away from it. So Lord, remind our hearts, afflict us, in areas that we need to be afflicted, Lord, as we, as we pursue things for the wrong reasons, convict us. Lord, help us to be like you this morning, we ask in Jesus' name.